0: Jacksonville Train Terminal. After a two-day journey out of the blistering cold, you can finally take off your coat as you make your way across the platform and climb aboard the Flagler train. You feel the excitement mount as you take your seat for the final leg of your trip and gaze out the window at the bustling southern port town. The last big city you will see for a while. It's been a hard year. Long hours at work to stay ahead of the competition and secure your small fortune. But you have done well. You can finally afford a break and the enjoyment of some of life's finer things. For years, the exotic wonders of Florida have danced in your daydreams, and now... Finally, you sit at the threshold of adventure, savoring the final moments before venturing down into that enigmatic country. The horn blows, signaling all aboard. The engine lets loose a mighty cough of smoke as it lurches to life and slowly pulls out of the station and across the St. John's River. At last, you are on your way. As the final hours of your journey go by, a fascinating landscape passes before your eyes, the Spanish moss hanging from the oak trees, giving way to the citrus farms and a jungle landscape of cypress, slash pine, and palm. Civilization is now far behind you, and with it, the freezing cold and stress. The porter comes through with refreshments, He opens the windows before leaving, and a warm breeze blows through the cabin as you slowly drift off into a light and restful snooze. You awake to the train pulling into a busy little waterside town. It turns a corner and puffs across the waves of a beautiful, sparkling lagoon, and as the cry of seagulls reaches your ears, your final destination rises before you an enormous and palatial luxury hotel that seems to go on forever when the train comes to a halt the bellboys hop to carrying your things for you as you are whisked through the grand front doors and the splendid hallways and up to your room throwing open the balcony doors the warm salty air of the tropics fills your curtains and washes over you permeating your lungs with revitalizing energy. Already, you feel healthier, and you gaze across the water, your paradise far away from everything, where all your needs are taken care of. You've made it. You're finally here. And now, there is nothing to do but relax, mingle, and have fun. Welcome to the story of Miami. Episode 20, The Business. In 1878, as Standard Oil was rocketing into the history books and Flagler's pockets ballooned with money... His personal life took a grave turn when his wife Mary fell ill. As was becoming common medical advice, the doctor recommended a trip to the warmer air of Florida to recover. So that winter, Flagler took Mary down to Jacksonville, which, at the time, was the farthest southern extent of the train. It was a welcome escape from the cold, but two years later, Mary sadly passed away. In those two years, Flagler had fallen for Mary's caregiver, Ida Shorts, and he wasted no time in making her his second wife. They married in 1881, and for their honeymoon, Flagler took Ida back down to Florida. This time, they ventured a bit further, exploring the rustic seaside streets of St. Augustine. The ancient Spanish city thoroughly enchanted Flagler, and ever the businessman, he began to recognize that Florida was brimming with untapped potential. The place was a gem, a wonderful escape, but somehow it had been left behind by the march of time. There were no good hotels, and even if there were, transportation beyond Jacksonville was still in the dark ages. Well, Flagler knew a thing or two about building things and making money. In fact, He had earned so much money that he needed something to do with it all. Here at last was his golden opportunity, and a good excuse to move to Florida to boot. Though he remained on the board of Standard Oil, he handed the reins over to Rockefeller to carry on taking over the world, and turned his energy towards his new passion. Drawing upon his own vast personal fortune he undertook an intense period of research as he formulated a business plan. And in 1885, after several years of planning, he finally broke ground on a grand luxury hotel in St. Augustine. Located only steps away from the ocean and boasting 540 rooms, the magnificent Ponce de Leon Hotel was a sight to behold. With interiors and stained glass windows designed by Louis Comfort Tiffany, and enormous murals by George W. Maynard adorning the rotunda and dining room, the hotel launched the careers of legendary architects Carrera and Hastings, and its Spanish Renaissance style would go on to become a symbolic motif of Florida architecture. The building was also a technical marvel, one of the first in the world constructed out of poured concrete, and one of the first designed from the ground up for electricity powered by electric dynamos provided by Flagler's personal friend, Thomas Edison. When it opened in 1888, the Ponce became an instant success. It was so successful that the lack of adequate transportation for both passengers and supplies quickly became the bottleneck of the enterprise. Flagler thus made his first foray into the railroad business, one he knew well from his work at Standard Oil. A handful of short local railways existed in the area, and he bought them all, linking them together, upgrading the tracks, and building a bridge over the St. John's River that connected them to the national network. Before long, the Ponce de Leon had become a favorite destination of America's private car set, who, before the days of the private jet, purchased and operated their own personal trains to gallivant around the country. Countless movers and shakers stayed at the Ponce, which in its time would go on to host the likes of Presidents Grover Cleveland and Theodore Roosevelt, author Mark Twain, and baseball legend Babe Ruth. The Ponce was such a success that it couldn't handle all the demand, and Flagler built another luxury hotel the Alcazar, across the street. Soon thereafter, he purchased a third hotel, the Casa Monica, which he revamped and renamed the Cordova. Thus began Flagler's obsession with Florida. Looking down the east coast from St. Augustine, he saw that there were miles and miles of opportunity. In Florida, he could build a new American Riviera, a tropical escape for the wealthy. In 1889, he purchased the line down to Daytona and today's Ormond Beach, where he acquired the Ormond Hotel and made it another smashing success. There was no longer any question. Florida was a hit. Flagler was now in the hotel business, which thrived as long as there were guests filling the rooms. To help fill the rooms, he had entered the railroad business, which thrived as long as there was stuff that needed transporting. But hotel guests were not sufficient. His rails also needed freight traffic. And here, Florida's emerging citrus industry was the key. Oranges, lemons, limes, and so on, these delicious and exotic commodities were very hard to get in the U.S. But since the 1870s, Florida had been growing them in droves. The old central Florida town of Orlando emerged as the economic hub of Florida citrus. Along the Atlantic coast, however, the industry remained hamstrung due to the poor transportation network. As Flagler's railroad connected each new destination, the national marketplace was suddenly thrown open to local farmers. His railroad helped boost the rapid growth of the citrus industry, and crucially, the citrus industry gave Flagler's railroad its primary freight clientele. But as he looked down the coast, Flagler took pause. Yes, there were endless miles of pristine tropical waterfront with prime citrus lands behind them, but the path forward was not clear. For one thing, going further south would mean, for the first time, building brand new tracks of his own rather than purchasing existing lines. That would be risky and expensive, and require entering a third business, real estate development. But complicating matters further, Flagler was not alone in Florida. For decades already, the foremost railroad titan of Florida had been a man named Henry Plant, and he is worth a moment or two of our time. Plant had already established the extensive plant system, a network of both rail and steamship lines which tied together much of Florida north of Lake Okeechobee and linked it to the rest of the country. He had been a major influence in the growth of Florida citrus, and today is well known for his place in Tampa's history. For when Plants Railroad reached that previously isolated bayside community in 1883, it immediately took off. It was this critical link that, among other things, convinced Spanish cigar maker Vicente Martinez Ibor to move his manufacturing operation from Key West to Tampa in 1885. From there, Ybor could import high-quality tobacco straight from Havana, and then ship fine cigars directly to the parlors of America over Henry Plant's rails. In modern Tampa, Ybor City, the immigrant neighborhood that grew up around Ybor's factory, remains a beloved historic landmark. Plant had thus far neglected to build much on the state's east coast, being fully occupied by the development of Florida's interior and Gulf Coast, When the towering figure of Henry Flagler appeared in Florida, Plant suddenly found himself facing stiff competition. In 1891, motivated by this new rival's success in St. Augustine and Daytona, Plant completed the luxurious 511-room Tampa Bay Hotel, an enormous resort built in the Moorish Revival style and featuring, among other things, one of Florida's first-ever elevators. Like the Ponce, it was a great success, and thereafter, as Flagler eyed the possibilities on the East Coast, Plant set his sights on the western shores, building his own chain of hotels. The two were soon locked in a rivalry that was often friendly, but at times became quite bitter. It was at this Very moment, 1891, that Julia Tuttle made her bold move to Fort Dallas, betting everything she had that at last Miami's time was at hand. Perhaps if it hadn't been her, it would have been someone else. Perhaps with a pair of railroad millionaires battling each other for dominance of the peninsula, it was inevitable that even the most distant reaches of Florida were finally destined to gain that long-sought-after link to the world. But perhaps it is in that very inevitability that we find the genius of Julia Tuttle, whose lifetime in the circles of America's wealthiest entrepreneurs had taught her that so much of success came down to being in the right place at the right time. Here at Miami, she had seen the writing on the wall and had positioned herself to capitalize. All that remained was to convince one of these men to bring their railroad all the way down here. Both were still hundreds of miles away and busy with more immediately profitable ventures. She began writing Flagler incessantly imploring him to explore the idea, but he rebuffed her again and again, to the point where he considered her a nuisance. It would be years before he would be able to bring a railroad that far. And for what? What did Biscayne Bay have to offer that could not be found much closer at hand? So Tuttle turned to Plant, or rather, Plant's chief engineer, James Edmondson Ingram, Whose acquaintance she had made in the rarefied air of Cleveland dinner parties. She wrote to Ingram, quote, Someday someone will build a railroad to Miami, and when they do, I will be willing to divide my properties there and give one half to the company for a town site. Perhaps you will be that man, end quote. Stranger things have happened, Ingram wrote back, and possibly, someday, I may hold you to that promise. Ingram and Plant were at least curious enough to investigate the possibility. By this time, they had a line as far south as Punta Gorda, near Fort Myers on the west coast. In order to get to Miami, this line would have to cut clean across the Everglades. This was a tall order indeed. But there was a powerful incentive— the outstanding offer by the internal improvement fund of florida which stood ready to hand over millions of acres of this wetland to whoever could drain it it was this and not the possibilities of biscayne bay that truly motivated ingram and plant but if they were successful it would only make sense to activate the region with a railroad terminating at miami thus in 1892 Ingram, on Plant's behalf, assembled a party of 22 men at Fort Myers and set out on foot to investigate. The historic Ingram expedition through the Everglades was the most detailed and scientific study of the Everglades yet. Ingram was no swaggering daredevil. He was a company man, investigating a business opportunity potentially worth many millions. And yet... Despite careful and meticulous planning, the party took an enormous risk when they embarked on the adventure, marching into the water carrying rifles, canvas canoes, and a mere twelve days' worth of provisions. Ingram's men took detailed daily notes of their observations, along with regular depth measurements of the swamp waters. A few also kept personal diaries. When riding in a canoe, one witty diarist explained, the hair should be carefully parted down the middle. Rings on the fingers should be divided so that an equal number and weight are on each hand, and there should be no more tacks in one shoe than in the other. By observing these precautions, I kept my balance and prevented the canoe from turning over. Their first-hand accounts provide a marvelous glimpse into this mysterious world at the turn of the century. Canoeing, wading, and swimming from island to island through the snake- and alligator-infested waters, they chronicled encounters with friendly seminoles, hunts for waterfowl, turtle, and wildcat to eat, and a slowly impending sense of doom. As the wilderness closed in around them, and they fell further and further behind schedule. At one point, the party became blocked by thick walls of sawgrass that forced them to backtrack and lose an entire day of progress. And when their supplies began to dwindle, they were forced to go on severe rations. Team members began falling ill, obliging the majority to stop completely, camping on a tiny island while a smaller detachment went ahead to locate the Miami River. Miraculously, the entire party endured, making it to the headwaters of the river after surviving for 21 days, nine days longer than planned. Wallace Moses, expedition secretary, described the moment of deliverance. Quote, At the rapids, the rock appeared prominently, Ingram and Newman walked around the rapids through the pine timber and met the canoe with Billy and the canvas boat with Chase and myself, who, under the leadership of the Indian, shot the rapids, coming through without accident, though the trip was quite exciting, the rocks being very sharp and jagged and the current very swift. The limbs of the trees, which lined the banks thickly, met and interlocked overhead, close down to the water the river appears to have two or three outlets from the glades. We arrived at Miami at noon and were warmly welcomed by Mrs. J.D. Tuttle, a friend of Mr. Ingram's, who raised the national ensign and exploded a dynamite cartridge in honor. Her well-served meals and soft beds made a profound impression on our minds and bodies. End quote. After resting and recovering, the party toured the grounds of Fort Dallas. Of the stone buildings, Moses wrote, Both the buildings are of hewn rock, finished off with cement, and facing towards the south. They are delightfully located in the midst of orange, lemon, lime, and coconut trees, together with other tropical trees and growth. Some of the coconut trees are 30 to 40 feet in height. Mrs. Tuttle has quite a stock farm and dairy, with an abundance of chickens. She has shown a great deal of energy and enterprise in this frontier country, where it is almost a matter of creation to accomplish so much in so short a time. End the Ingram Expedition went on to document the entire Biscayne Bay region and southeast coast of Florida, meeting face-to-face with all the locals we have come to know. But in his final report, Ingram was conclusive that a train through the Everglades was crazy talk, squashing any hope of a Miami extension of the plant system. But South Florida made a big impression on Ingram, who at the same time confirmed that the best route to get there was undoubtedly down the East Coast. When these reports reached Flagler, he saw that if he acted fast, he stood to own the entire East Coast, boxing out Plant completely. And with a major risk eliminated, Flagler quickly hired Ingram away from Plant and put him to work. Plans got underway for a beeline of more than 100 miles down the coast to the pristine sandy island known as Palm Beach on the shores of Lake Worth. At the northernmost extremity of what was then still Dade County, the line would stop a mere 70 miles short of Miami. This left the problem of real estate, a business that is intimately intertwined with the history of America's railroads. Building a railroad is expensive and very risky, for if it turns out that there is not enough traffic for the railroad the venture may never recover its costs. To incentivize the building of this critical infrastructure and reduce the risk, it had been a great American tradition, ever since the building of the Transcontinental Railroad, for the government to grant enormous swaths of public land to the railroad builders. The typical arrangement was a grant of six square miles of land for every mile of railroad built, provided in alternating square-mile public land survey system sections on either side of the railroad right-of-way. The alternating sections resulted in a big old checkerboard pattern, half owned by the railroad and half by the government. This pattern guaranteed that both parties got a piece of the action in the event that land values rose when the train came through. By these checkerboard land grants, railroad companies across America came to own enormous quantities of land, which, in desirable regions, typically rose in value as soon as the railroad's construction was announced. In the ideal case, the development spurred by the railroad would eventually lead to additional traffic for the train, thus completing the beautiful synergy between real estate and railway. In fact, It was often the real estate play, more than anything else, that drove the construction of new tracks. As railroads poured money into developing the empty lands they acquired, they saw stupendous returns on the investment. Many towns across America were built this way. Flagler certainly intended to capitalize on this system, but there was just one little problem almost all the available land grants on the coast had been claimed by someone else. You may recall back in episode 14, Taking Measure, that a canal had been envisioned since the end of the Seminole Wars to link the many lagoons and rivers on Florida's east coast and provide a protected waterway for shipping and settlement. Well, in 1881, a group of wealthy financiers had formed the Florida Coastline Canal and Transportation Company to do just that. And virtually all of the available land grants down the East Coast had been promised to them by Florida's Internal Improvement Fund. As a result, there were barely any land grants left for Flagler. But, as luck would have it, a solution was readily apparent for the canal company was learning the hard way that canals were far more expensive to dig than they had planned. By the 1890s, a decade into the project, they still hadn't reached Lake Worth and were running out of money. Flagler approached the canal company with a simple offer. If they split the land with him, he would help fund the canal's completion. It was a win-win and in fact would increase the value of each party's land even further, since there would now be both an overland and water connection. In 1893, Flagler signed a deal by which he would receive half the canal company's grants, three square miles for each mile of rail built, and later that year he was elected president of the canal company. A handful of additional rights-of-way had to be secured from private landowners, but this was simply a matter of price, which was no issue to Flagler. The way was now cleared, and over the next year, both the canal and railroad under Flagler's direction rapidly progressed south. Train stations popped up along the way, the citrus farmers prospered, and the land values rose. And in the meantime, Work was begun on Flagler's magnificent Palm Beach Resort, which was to be a secluded getaway, an exclusive paradise hundreds of miles from everything. With this model already proven and the risks eliminated, he went all in. The 1,100-room Royal Poinciana Hotel was to be his crown jewel, bigger and bolder than anything he had built before. The gigantic edifice was completed in 1894, perfectly timed with the arrival of the railroad. Golf, tennis, swimming, fishing, boating, bathing, the Royal Poinciana had it all, and it was another instant success for Flagler. Despite being absolutely enormous, In the coming years, it needed multiple further expansions. At one point, it was the largest wooden structure on earth. It was so large that bellhops rode through the halls on bicycles to deliver the mail. Two years later, to accommodate demands for rooms on the ocean side of the island, where guests could overlook the breaking waves, Flagler would build another huge hotel a 538-room resort that came to be known simply as The Breakers. For the first time in its history, Dade County was the place to be. Employing upwards of 1,700 people at its height, the Royal Poinciana Hotel alone drew an enormous population to the otherwise barely inhabited wilderness, All of these people needed homes, and thus the business acumen of Flagler was apparent again, for of course, he owned the real estate. Across the lagoon, on the western banks of Lake Worth, he had purchased the land from the local homesteaders, who for their part, never had to work again. On this land, he had a town site surveyed and platted, and the parcels sold like hotcakes. On November 5, 1894, 78 people met in the service town to incorporate Dade County's first ever municipality, the town of West Palm Beach. Flagler's first fortune was made in the oil fields of Pennsylvania and refineries of Cleveland. But his second fortune came from the tropical breeze and vast sandy beaches of Florida. With awe-inspiring mastery, he had leveraged the synergy of tourism, transportation, fruit farming, and real estate. Each fed the others, and Flagler made money off of all of them. By now, he had hundreds of miles of railroad and hundreds of thousands of acres of prime, untapped Florida land, in whose promotion and development he was intensely engaged. With more than enough to keep him busy and fill his pockets, he was content to make Palm Beach the end of the line. Beyond there was nothing but the Everglades and a narrow rocky ridge of dry land with limited potential. Besieged daily by opportunists pitching him poorly thought-out schemes, the petitions of Julia Tuttle made little impression on his mind. Things were now really turning a corner for Florida. People were making serious money in the state. With his construction projects completed, Flagler's massive capital investments were finally paying off, and the many beneficiaries of these connections were prospering. And it was at this moment that an altogether new calamity struck. It was neither a hurricane, nor war, nor anything we've yet come to expect in the long history of Florida's problems. But all the same, it threatened to send the entire peninsula back to square one once more. As disaster swept through the heart of the Florida economy, all eyes would suddenly turn towards that furthest, warmest corner of Florida, that age-old refuge of the fleeing and desperate Biscayne Bay.